Once upon a time, a four-legged, mysterious beast was sighted again and again in the United States West. It was described as being red, much larger than a horse, and carrying a rider who looked like he might have been straight from hell, or maybe a headless man. What were the people of Arizona seeing in the late 19th century? Today we have the story of the Red Ghost on the 153rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Welcome to my home. I'm so glad you dropped by. Yes, I have the air conditioning on because it's warm. No, it's hot here in Chicagoland. Very hot. But I'm not complaining. Now, before we get started, I'd like to thank Russell. He sent me quite a few emails this week. It seems he's been going through many of my old episodes and commenting on many. The funny part is, Russell, that after over 150 stories in four years, it's sometimes hard to remember just what I was talking about. And Russell, I know I didn't answer every one of your emails individually, but I did read each one and they're very interesting, thanks so much. And the People's Almanac sounds like a fantastic idea. So today's story is a little bit shorter than usual. My original thought was to find something short like the Solway First Spaceman. That was a photograph a man took of his son in 1964. In the photograph, there appears, right behind his son, a figure that seems to be a man in a spacesuit. Now, the man who took the photograph says he doesn't remember anyone being in the background, and many have concluded that this means he took a picture of a space alien. But it was more likely just his wife with her back to the camera, overexposed, giving her dress that white spacesuit look. And if it's not that, I'm sure there is a logical explanation. You know, I make product videos for toys, and I I shoot a lot of video with young kids, and a lot of times I'm so focused on the kid trying to get the right reaction for the video that a space band could walk by behind the child, and I probably wouldn't notice. But anyway, oh wait, I just did tell that short story, didn't I? Oh well... That's about all there is to it, so I guess I'm done with that one. I can cross it off my list. Anyway, it's a nice weekend here in Chicago, and I've got some things to do, so let's get into this story right away. The story of a mysterious beast wandering around in the West in the late 1800s. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Linda knows that something is out there. Something so evil it penetrates the soul. Something lurking in the black of night. So real she can almost taste it. Something is out there. And it's coming closer and closer and... Something is out there. So terrifying, you've only seen it in your nightmares. Rated PG from Film Ventures. A war between the United States Army and the Native Americans, known as the Apache, had been fought since 1849. 
but by 1883, it was pretty much coming to an end. In Eagle Creek, which is an area in the southeastern corner of the Arizona Territory, people were having a problem with their livestock. It seemed they were being slaughtered or driven off, and some thought that Geronimo and his Apaches might be responsible. The legend goes that on a spring morning, the men of one home had left to see how many of their sheep they had lost, leaving two women and their children behind. Now, depending on whose version of the story you read, they could have been sisters, or they might have been a mother and daughter. Anyway, at that time, it was still dangerous to be left alone since there were still a few renegade bands of Apache warriors on the prowl. Around noon or so, one of the women went to get water from the spring that was not too far from the home in the thickets of the willows. Moments later, the other woman, whose name might have been Anne, was alarmed to hear the house dog barking frantically. Going to the window, Anne saw something that she described as red, enormous, and ridden by the devil. From down by the creek, she heard a horrible scream. Terrified, she began to barricade the door bolt all the windows in an effort to protect the children. Then she began to pray intensely as she waited for the men to return. The other lady never came back. It was after dark when the men returned, and she told them what had happened. With lit torches, they went to investigate. Down by the water, they found the missing lady dead. She had been trampled to death, some say to the point of almost being flat. With further investigation the following morning... The area was examined, and they found hoof prints, almost twice the size of a horse, and in the willows were long, red clumps of hair. The coroner was highly suspicious of the story and suspected murder. Eventually, though, the death was listed as death in some manner unknown. This was the first reported story of what is now known as the Red Ghost. Now, I call this a legend because the way I told it here is the way you hear it all over the internet. I have searched and searched for a source to this tale, hoping that I could find the names of those involved. Besides one paranormal radio show that identified the surviving lady as Anne, I couldn't find anything else. I'll talk a little bit more about this at the end of the show, but for now, let's assume that it is a true tale and move on. I assume it's true because the beast with the horrible rider that Anne saw was real. A couple of days later, the beast, the Red Ghost, made another appearance, this time near Clifton, Arizona, a few miles northeast of Eagle Creek. A group of prospectors who were looking for gold on the Chase Creek were in their tents sleeping when pounding hoofs and an awful scream awakened them. Their tents came crashing down, and in the darkness, the men crawled out. They saw what looked like an impossibly tall horse running off into the bush in the moonlight. The following day, they returned with the other miners and found the same large hoof prints and the clumps of red hair. So in the American Old West, the legend of the Red Ghost was born, a colossal beast with a devilish rider on its back, a murderous demonic manifestation, a hideous animal straight from hell. Over time, tales began to spread around, like a man who said he had chased the creature, but the creature escaped by vanishing into thin air, and another one of the beast eating a grizzly bear whole. 
These later tales were most likely invented around a campfire, perhaps with the help of a bottle. There were undoubtedly exaggerated tales of the Red Ghost, or the Fantasia Colorado as the Spanish-speaking settlers called it. After all, the newspapers at the time, who aren't much different from today's newspapers, were not above stretching the truth a little to sell more papers. But there were some true tales involving the Red Ghost. The beast was actually seen again, this time by a rancher named Cyrus Hamblin near the Salt River. He climbed up on a ridge looking for stray cattle when he saw the large reddish animal. The hair on the back of his neck began to rise as he went to get a better look. When the beast entered a fairly open area, Hamblin was able to identify just what he was seeing. It was a camel. He knew that camels were common animals in the desert area, but never had seen one in Arizona before. And as strange as it was to see a camel, it was even stranger to see that there was something on its back. To Hamlin, it looked like a man, a dead man. Cyrus Hamlin was a respected man, and his story was widely accepted as the truth. Some, though, were skeptical about the dead man on the camel's back. Since camels have humps, many were sure that's what Cyrus had seen. But what Cyrus saw wasn't a hump. A few weeks later, five prospectors saw the beast again, feeding on a hill. Slowly they inched closer, trying to get into shooting range. Finally they opened fire. Now apparently these men could have used a little more target practice, because, well, if they did hit the camel... The creature only suffered flesh wounds and quickly began to leave. But as it galloped away, something fell off its back. When they went to investigate, they saw, as one miner described it, a human skull with a few shreds of flesh and hair still clinging to it. What was going on here? Well, it all started with the United States military. The program was called the United States Camel Corps, and its formation began in 1836. This was at a time when America's westward expansion was really being hampered by the inhospitable West, between the hot, dry conditions of the desert, the mountains, and impassable rivers, traveling west was difficult for people and animals during this pre-railroad era. United States Army Major George H. Crossman suggested that camels would be ideal for the War Department to use for transportation. Studies were done, but nothing happened until 1853, when Senator Jefferson Davis of Mississippi was appointed as the Secretary of War. Because the U.S. forces were required to operate in the desert regions of the southwestern United States, the idea began to be taken seriously. In his annual report in 1854, Davis wrote, I again invite attention to the advantages to be anticipated from the use of camels and dromedaries for military and other purposes. He believed that camels were the key to the country's expansion westward. On March 3, 1855, the U.S. Congress appropriated $30,000 for the project. By the way, $30,000 today would be about $800,000. So on June 4, 1855, Major Henry C. Wayne was tasked with the job of traveling to the Middle East to buy a few camels. He departed from New York City on the USS Supply and visited places such as Malta, Greece, Turkey, and Egypt to look for the animals. 
On his first voyage, he purchased 33, 19 females and 14 males. One of the camels died on its way back to the U.S., but two were born on the ship, so he actually had 34 when he arrived. On his second trip, he bought 41 more, making a total of 75 that were all delivered to Camp Verde, Texas. Now, while on his trip, Wayne took a crash course in how to take care of the animals. He was so confident in his training that he stated, Americans will be able to manage camels not only as well, but better than Arabs. And they will do it with more humanity and with far greater intelligence. It seemed Wayne spoke too soon, as eventually a handful of Greeks, Turks, and Arabs were hired to look after the animals and teach the Americans what they needed to know. One of these were Haji Ali, or as the Americans called him, High Jolly. High Jolly would later become a prospector and a U.S. cavalry scout. Today he is honored by a pyramid-shaped memorial and an Arizona highway that bears his name. So tests were immediately done to see if camels would help the military, and soon it was confirmed that camels were excellent beasts of burden for use in the Southwest. They were first used to carry supplies from Texas to Arizona, a journey of over 50 miles during a severe rainstorm, and the animals did great. Former Navy Lieutenant Edwards Fitzgerald Beale took 25 pack camels, with each camel carrying a load of about 600 pounds. He took them on a journey from San Antonio to California. Beale wrote very favorably about the camel's endurance and packing abilities. Among his comments was that he would rather have one camel than four mules. Jefferson Davis was thrilled with the results and stated in his annual report for 1857 that these tests fully realized the anticipation entertained in their usefulness in the transportation of military supplies. Thus far, the results is as favorable as the most sanguine could have hoped. The camels were great. They could carry up to 600 pounds of dry goods and even the mail, and they were more self-sufficient than horses or mules, as they would eat plants and things that other animals wouldn't touch. Even with all their advantages, many soldiers, however, preferred to use horses, as camels were known to be stubborn and bad-tempered. But this is not why the Camel Corps was discontinued. It was because it was the brainchild of Jefferson Davis. In 1861, the American Civil War began and Jefferson Davis became the only president of the Confederate States. So you can imagine that once the war ended and the North was victorious, the leader of the South, Jefferson Davis, wasn't all that popular. Everything that Javis was involved in, every plan he had, including the United States Camel Corps, was shunned. All the beasts were sold at auction. Camels were still used in the West for years, until a locomotive connected the East to the West, and then the days of the camel were over, despite their great success. So that's a quick overview of how camels were introduced into the Western United States. Yet, the Red Ghost, as you may remember, was known to have, some said, the devil, or a headless man, or some sort of horrible creature, something unholy, riding on its back. And witnesses didn't imagine that. They were seeing something. 
Now, while the sightings of camels were still happening in the early 20th century in America's Southwest, the story of the camel and the mysterious rider was solved in 1893. It had been over 10 years since the beast's first appearance when one morning a man named Mizzou Hastings, an Arizona farmer, woke up and looked out of his cabin window to see a large red camel eating out of his turnip patch. Grabbing his rifle, he rested it on the windowsill, took aim and fired, and the red ghost was dead. An examination of the beast revealed that, well, first, the animal was all scarred up, giving indication that his life had not been an easy one. But what really got Mizzou's attention was the perfect network of knotted rawhide strips on its body. These strips had been on the animal so long that they had cut into its flesh. It was apparent that at one time, somebody had been tied to the animal's back. There are a few explanations. One is that at one time, perhaps as a joke, someone tied a dead body to the animal and let it go. Another, a more widely accepted theory, a horrible one, was it was part of a soldier's initiation right into the army, or perhaps it was part of a punishment that he was strapped to the back of a camel. Something startled the beast, and it got away with the man on its back not being able to get free. The camel wandered around the desert while its rider slowly died of dehydration. Perhaps the soldiers that tied him to the camel swore secrecy and never told anybody what they had done. Another thought was that a man, possibly a prospector, who had been lost in the desert and had been dying of thirst, came across the animal and tied himself to it, hoping the camel would eventually find water. So it turns out that while there is no mystery of just what the red ghost was, there is a mystery about who the man was that was tied to its back. If camels are so useful on the deserts of China and Tibet, why couldn't they be equally useful here in our American desert? The next time I go to Washington, I'm going to put the idea up to Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis? Who's he? He's head of the Senate Committee on Military Affairs and vitally interested in opening up the West. Go to it. You kind of skeptical about the idea of a camel corps? No. I just never seen a camel, that's all. Except in pictures. And you will, though. I predict you'll see them on our American desert as part of the Army transport system and within the next few years. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. Uh, a few things before I go. The most frustrating part of the story was the first one about the two women, the one being trampled to death. I searched for hours and hours who couldn't come up with any real information like their names. I found a newspaper article from 1893 that mentioned it, but it was pretty much the same version that I told here. There was a paranormal podcast, like I mentioned, that said the survivor's name was Anne and the two women were mother and daughter. I don't know where they got that from. I couldn't verify that. Every other version of the story just referred to them as two women, with a couple saying that they were sisters. Now, if this was the only bit of information I had towards the Red Ghost story, I would have discounted it. But even if that event didn't happen and was just a campfire story, I'm fairly confident that there was a camel with a dead man strapped to his back, since there were other verified sightings. Regardless, I still think the story of the United States Camel Corps was an interesting one. 
It's funny that a very successful idea was halted because of the unpopularity of one man. But doesn't that still happen today? Each political party must hate each other's ideas, whether they are good or not. By the way, um, during my research, I discovered that the wonderful podcast, The Stuff You Missed in History Class, did the story of the Red Ghost. And uh, I haven't listened to it for obvious reasons. Um, I am going to listen to it now that mine's done, or maybe I'm not. I don't know. I might get upset if they did a better job than me, which they probably did. One last thing. I want to thank everybody who checked out my short film, Free to Willie. I put it on the Coffee with Jeff Facebook page and on my Twitter account. And I know a few of you have checked it out. Uh, If you have time, it's only a little over seven minutes long. It's just something I wrote for fun one day, a little comic short film. I'll have a link to it in today's show notes. Anyway, like I said, the show was a bit shorter today. But if that's all there is, that's all there is. I don't want to waste your time. So why don't we get into the ending credits? Now, isn't it nice that these Psycon podcasts are ad-free? The reason why they're ad-free is because we count on listeners like you to help support us. And you can do that by visiting the Psycon website, that's CSICON.FM, Psycon.FM, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon... While you're on our website, check out a few of our other shows. There's a lot of good stuff there. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have that Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I had mentioned. Your story ideas are always welcome. And you can use any of these places to let me know about them. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or give me a couple stars or something. Those really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen every week, thank you so much, and a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. I'll be back in two weeks with another exciting story.
Coffee. 